Welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, we are in a series that we've been looking at, looking at um, poems and books and movies in which have been helpful to us as pastors in our ministry. And the last couple weeks we've been looking at specifically at a couple movies and um, where maybe the example has not been so much helpful and good, uh, but maybe helpful to tell us what not to do and how not to behave as quote unquote good Christian people. <laughs> so, Steve, what are we looking at today, and how is it going to maybe sort of help mess us? mess us up and then help us by the end? Yeah. I hope. Um, well, I'll I'll tell you about this. Is it, it began as a book? It is now also a TV series, um, and there's a couple of scenes or important moments that they are particularly sticking with me right now. The the book is Neil Gaiman's book uh, American Gods, um, and is now a uh, TV series on the Stars channel for people who get like one of those you know prestige cable TV sort of things where you can be cinematic and lots of um, uh, special effects and big name stars and just be weird and leave you with a cliffhanger every episode. It's, it's that kind of a show. Um, it, it's a it's a little bit hard to unpack, but let me offer the premise first, which I, I think is fascinating in and of itself. The premise of Neil Gaiman's novel is that um, in any land, but in particular in America where he said it, as people groups have come to this country over centuries bringing their own ancestral faiths from different places, those gods come to life because people believe in them. So it's sort of this this notion, kind of like um, we, we talked around a little bit with maybe uh, Terry Pratchett when we talked Discworld. about... Yeah, and Discworld. Yeah, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman they were, best, were really yeah, yeah, friends, yeah. so, they, so they like to share ideas. There, like yeah, that. there are definitely some overlapping ideas here. Um, but so in that means that uh, America, and I think this is why Gaiman p- picked America as the setting for the story, even though he's British, is that like you've got this weird place on planet Earth where lots of different groups from lots of different continents have come over centuries. And so uh, the old Norse gods are here from back in the days when the Vikings were, uh, you know, exploring. You've got um, uh, all sorts of European mythology and gods and goddesses who've come in wave after wave of immigrants in American history since the founding of the United States. There are African deities and beliefs that have uh, occurred uh, and and now live and exist as beings. And the the premise of the of the the book and then the TV show is that there were days in earlier generations where each of those kinds of gods and goddesses had power because there were live believers in them. But as time has gone on, as there were fewer and fewer people who believe in, say, the Norse gods, you know, like Odin and Thor, they weakened in their power. Uh, And as other more respectable religions have come along the way, in particular, what Gaiman looks at is what he sees as the new gods that don't look religious at all, but his point is to say how we turn them into religions. Things like our belief in the world or in uh, credit cards or in technology technology or in the economy and things like that. And so he's created a world where uh, behind the scenes, while human beings are living our daily lives, you know, working and going to the grocery store and just living, there are these weak old gods, uh, uh, like, you know, you can imagine Zeus, but, but Thor and Odin and... Um, other beings like that. Uh, there's a, an African trickster storytelling god, Anansi, who shows up as well as a, a big character. Um fighting against the uh, new gods, the world, and technology and money, who are also characters. And, like, just as a concept, that was really, really interesting to me when I first read this book uh, because it sort of unpacked the way we do invest 
almost religious-like devotion in things that we, in, in our era we like to imagine this is a secular age and there's no official state religion and we you know believe whatever you want to believe and there's no official and you're free to not believe in it, but we all have these sort of secret devotions or not-so-secret and how they court our affection. One of the things that is true about the old gods and the new in Neil Gaiman's book is that all these gods and goddesses are basically needy. They need people to uh, to want them, to, to believe in them, and to sacrifice for them. And so whether you're sacrificing by offering prayers and singing hymns to them or burning incense, or uh, you offer blood sacrifice like in the old days, or you give your money or, if it's technology, your face and screen time to it, um, they are given more power. And so this is this big climactic battle that brews in the story. It's fascinating as a as a story or as a concept to me, and so just just that by itself was interesting to me, and has made me like re-examine even what it means to be people of faith who own a particular story, and to know that we step into in every in every place we go, there are. Uh, other idols and gods around us all the time that people may or may not acknowledge. That that even though uh, in in our county there aren't um, any temples to golden calves around like in the in- ancient Israelite days, um, there are billboards and stores and. ATMs everywhere, and man, we do treat those like they are repositories of uh, power, and and uh, we do almost deify them as well. It, it, like in the back of my head is this line of Martin Luther's that whatever you love and trust the most is your God, um, which is a way of saying that like it is quite possible to be a good church-going, uh, religiously observing, uh, nominal Christian, and yet actually secretly to worship your four hundred one k or your pension or your job or your car or all the above, and how. How even in a country that imagines itself as uh, being monotheistically or monolithically uh, Christian, as we've sometimes imagined ourselves, that's not really ever been true. We've always been kind of polytheistic, and we've had lots of churches and steeples while also worshiping money and the economy and you know all kinds of other things. But it, on top of that, the, there's a scene that is in the TV show that. Um, doesn't doesn't immediately copy right out of the book, but it feels to me very much in the spirit of what what Gaiman is trying to do in his book. And the the, the book is several decades old now. I'm thinking, um, but the the TV show is current, current, current. And so there's a there's a scene in an episode uh, early on in the first season of the show that uh, depicts um, it's a it's on the U.S. southern border. And this is the thing that that haunts me because um, uh, in in the book. Gaiman doesn't almost, almost, almost none at all interact with Christianity. Almost because like that, maybe that'd be too weird for him to interact with. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but so the main gods are like the old Norse ones and technology and things like that. So Jesus doesn't figure prominently in the plot of, um, of uh, uh, the book American Gods. But there's this uh, episode where in the beginning of the episode, like before the, the the title sequence, so in the cold open, you've got this group of migrants who are trying to cross over the Rio Grande. And um, they are, as they're walking along, like it, it's, it's one of those show-don't-tell kind of things. Like you catch them, uh, you know, praying. You catch them, you know, holding their rosary beads. So, like, these are people who are devout as they are, you know, about to cross over. Again, to illegally cross into the United States. And um, on the... Um, uh, 
Texas border, on the the, uh, American border, there's a self-appointed border patrol group of people who appear, and they all bring out their their, uh, weapons, and they're threatening these people and telling them not to cross. And there, uh, there's this close-up of the the bullets as they're loading them into their guns. And these bullets have crosses inscribed on them, and they are made by, like, it's like, and and like all the village trapping is that they're convinced that they've got Jesus on their side because they're the ones defending their land and their border, and Jesus is on our side. And um, something sets off uh, a conflict where the the border patrol starts shooting at these migrants who come, and uh, then you see Christ, literally Christ, show up on the side of the migrants who are coming, and he takes a bullet. And I, I think in the episode in the in the scene, he he like heals somebody who gets shot or something. Like that. But I, the the thing that's haunting to me is here's here's this scene where both sides of this confrontation of this situation are convinced they've got Jesus on their side. Um, and, of course, the, the the show makes no bones about where they think Jesus authentically is, and they're, they're just like, yep, Jesus is on the side of the migrants here. That's a no-brainer there. And the show proceeds on. Um, one of the things that's interesting is later on, either in that episode or later on, they deal with this uh, the, the multiplicity of Jesuses, too. And so there's the scene where, um, at an Easter party, with the actual pagan god uh, Astarte, who is the you know, pagan origins of, of Easter. She holds an Easter party. It's, it's, it's hilarious because she ha- she realizes she now has to share her day with Jesus because, you know, Easter is now about Jesus too. And in her house, in this big, glorious, like, southern, you know, plantation kind of estate, there's like a hundred different Jesus, all wearing different variations of the robe and all that because there's this, there's this idea the show promulgates of like, with all these different variations of Christianity in America, you've got a hundred different Jesuses. So there's not just huh. one definitive Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's, you know... Um, tough guy, strong, muscular Jesus. There's, you know, hipster coffee shop Jesus. There's um, Spanish-speaking Jesus. I mean, like, so, like, there's this notion of, like, we've created all sorts of incarnations, to borrow that theological word, of Jesus, and don't acknowledge that we've sort of created... It is going to sound weird to say, as a practicing Christian, but idols of Jesus, in a sense, of, like, differing Jesuses, and sometimes they all get along. In that scene, when they're all in the Easter party, they're all, they're, I mean, the, he's the most cordial, pleasant guy you'll ever meet. Um, but the scene earlier, where there's the, the two groups uh, at the border, there's, like, sometimes we pit different pictures of Jesus against one another, and that's stayed with me in a haunting way um, uh, even though there's lots of that TV show that just goes beyond me or I don't quite get what the TV producers are saying, where I think I can understand what Neil Gaiman is saying in the novel. Um, but that notion of the many kinds of Jesuses that are out there and the ways, um, despite the fact Genesis starts saying we were made in the image of God, like the old line saying we've been returning the favor ever since remaking God over in our image over and over and over again. And to me there is this very concrete example of how you get people who are convinced they are right and the way that they demonstrate their right is, well, Jesus is on our side. And man, how quickly then we dig in our heels. Because if Jesus is on our side... The devil must be on the other side, and we have to get whoever's on the other side. Uh, and it's a, it's a haunting image to me for for that reason, as well as with that scene with all these Jesuses at the Easter party, how we kind of turn Jesus into a commodity product. You know, like, uh, well, try this Jesus, try this Jesus, try this version. You know, uh, if you don't if you don't like classic Jesus, try new fresh Jesus. If you don't like you know uh, organs and uh, hymnal Jesus, try uh, you know projection screen and acoustic guitar Jesus. And so much of uh, American Christianity seems like we do that. Uh, without recognizing that we're doing that. So I've just dumped that on all of you. Now deal with it. (laughs) Or rather, I think there is a level where we do recognize that that happens, but we, whoever we are, Mm -hmm. 
we have the authentic, right. true Jesus. Right. Like, we read the Bible, we have a good grasp of who Jesus actually is and what Jesus wants us to do. Those other people who... Right, they've got it wrong. They have it wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, yeah. their Jesus is, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. so I think that's more of what it is, yeah. but... Um, well, and I, th- I think there's, like, overlap in the sense, because on the one hand, there's a certain arbitrariness to the Jesus I picture is the right one and you got the wrong one, mm-hmm. but interesting, too, how often we sort of, uh, the traits I want to focus on, I will find the verses out of the Bible, well, that's what my Jesus looks like, and you can tell he's the right Jesus because I've got these three Bible verses to back it up. Meanwhile, I've also made Jesus out to be Scandinavian blonde hair, you know, like, wait a second, that's not, you know. So we we sometimes play that game of, well, how how would you know who the right Jesus is? Well, he's the one out of the Bible. But even that, there's a certain amount of sifting that Mm -hmm. we do uh, to make the Jesus uh, of our preference, I guess. Right, because even within the Bible, I feel like there are different versions portraits yeah portraits of jesus right like are you talking about luke's jesus are you talking about john's jesus right are you talking about paul's jesus who never actually met jesus when he was still alive and each of those different portrayals of jesus differ slightly Mm -hmm. based off of what the author is trying to convey to his audience. Right, right, right. And there's a piece of me that thinks that is an appropriate and helpful reminder here, that the idea isn't to say we the, the goal should be to merge all of our multiple competing Jesuses into one bland, like, conglomerate Jesus, uh, but there's something valuable and, and, I think, intentional in the New Testament, that we get four portraits in the Gospels as well as you know, the epistles, and that's important. And th- there was a time in church history where some folks tried to glom them all into one. They called it the diatessaron, the uh, all four gospels glommed into one. And it's terrible. I mean, like, it, it not only is it, is it messy storytelling, but it, like, no, you have to let each of these have their own flavor because they're addressing particular things and let that be. So I, I don't know that I'm, I'm opposed to the idea of acknowledging that we do sort of different portraits of Jesus, but the ways that we pit them against one another. And beyond that, how we turn it into a, turn Jesus into a commodity. Mm-hmm. And I think also possibly in an agenda. Yeah, well, right. Because the way that we portray Jesus, the way that we tell Jesus' story, often reflects our own beliefs. Exactly. And what we want people to do. Exactly. Um, the example that I always come up with is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And the way that he took the Gospels to try to tell the story of Jesus' passion, but he tried... He tried to include multiple things from different gospels, but the way as well as a couple of extraneous medieval mystical sources as well. (laughs) But the agenda that he seemed to have, at least to me, was very much anti-Semitism. There's a certain anti-Semitism, right? And that since he focused so much on the torture of Jesus and mm-hmm. Jesus's death and made it very bloody and very gory and very dark. And then there was hardly anything about Easter mm-hmm. that it was also this like major guilt trip mm-hmm. of this is what Jesus went through for you. What are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a, Oh, I feel loved. I feel like, God really cares for me in order to do this. It was like, 
oh man yeah like if god did this what are you yeah are you pulling your weight kind of a thing yeah right like and i think that was very intentional and i think that's an important point that it's possible to use ostensibly only the biblical text or the biblical story and still to use it in a way that clearly has a direction again you can agree or disagree with his theological project or his agenda Mm -hmm. but this is clearly and 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 there were folks the look all he's done is just taken the biblical text and even put it in aramaic folks so it's even more bible-y even more authentic and yet clearly there is a thrust that okay there are dimensions of the new testament voices that talk in that way but there's also other new testament voices that are like no this is primarily about god loves us and so this is this is something that should be a word of hope and not a word of now i feel even more guilty and yeah interesting how that uh that i think exactly illustrates that this this challenge and this issue of the ways we depict or imagine jesus as i'm listening to the conversation i keep coming back to this quote you know when God hates the people that you hate, mm, then mm-hmm. you're not worshiping God. Right, right, right. You know, and that's what what I'm hearing here is like when you know, there's all these portraits of Jesus throughout the New Testament scripture, and portraits of Jesus even in the Old Testament to point us to yeah. realize that Jesus is who actually he says he was. Um, but there there are so different, and, yeah. and the, the idea that you know. Um, when you're talking about the the border scene, mm-hmm. you know, and Jesus is on both sides. Um, well, interestingly, in the show, Jesus isn't on both sides. Well, there's they, it, bullets inscribed with crosses on one, but yeah, they, but the, they, the, the yeah, the, the assumption is Jesus is on both sides, right? Uh-huh. You know, but it brings me back to the idea. You know, obviously, the you know the U.S. hates those on the south, and they think that they're right by having right. the crosses on their bullets. But that's you know, um, it's just again that yeah. same idea that we make Jesus in our own image, right. and we make him do to be who we want him to be rather than letting him just be who he is and then speaking into our lives. It, it reminds me, one of the rules of thumb I've tried to keep with me uh, in the years I've been in um, parish ministry is that if my mental picture of Jesus doesn't both disarm me and embrace me at the same time, I've made him mm-hmm. into an idol. And that it's, it's possible to err too much in, in one direction or the other. I think the point you made about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is, man, that's only a Jesus who just it just rails on you for not being good enough. And on the other hand, if uh, your picture of Jesus doesn't also make you squirm at the same time and expose things in us that we don't want to deal with, we've, we've sort of declawed him where he, he, Jesus insists on being um, relentless in, in being honest with us and being real with us. Yeah, so that, that, it, it, it's haunting in that regard to me. Um, it reminds me too. There's an, there's a a piece. I think it's a Mark Twain piece called the War Prayer. I don't know if you know this old uh, piece of, of uh, Mark Twain's, but the the gist is, and I I think it's set in the Civil War. Uh, it might have been the Mexican War. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, Twain uh, cast this story of the preacher. Uh, leading this prayer that God would bless their side because God's on their side of the conflict, whatever it is. And so he prays for God to do these terrible, wicked, I mean, violent things to the other side because he's convinced God's on our side and not on the other side. And obviously that's not just one moment in history. That We've been constantly doing this kind of thing of... Uh, uh, picturing that if if God's on my team, then God must not be on the other team because we're opposites, we're enemies. So, And that maybe we're wrong about that assumption that God can only be on one side or the other. But then aren't there psalms, though, that make it seem to, to say that very same thing You know that, that we call yeah. Scripture? Now, that's an interesting point. <laughs> that's a really interesting point, the imprecatory psalm. Because I guess my question, and you're right, there are psalms that are absolutely like relentless, like God dashed my, my enemies' babies on the rocks. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, 
And and I I am wholeheartedly willing to go with yep that's part of our scripture we got to deal with that and is God breathed, but is it God breathed in the sense of yes God wills for us to pray this prayer or is it to say our God is able to when when you get when this is as angry as you are, I mean there's something beautiful that we don't get at the end of that psalm and God is required to do the thing that you prayed for because uh, it was a prayer and you said God's name that like God isn't a genie and that's one of the beautiful things about God being not being a genie is that I can pray something terrible and God is not obligated to go well you did say in Jesus name so now I must smite your enemies but like when you're in that when you're in that desperate place God can take it and then the fact that um, God's big enough to take you need to be angry fine you. Need, Okay, and now when you vented it, notice I didn't smack down your enemies for you. So, I, I think I think that says something about how God uh, is willing to bear with all the ugly ways we we depict God too. Sometimes, but d- d- doesn't God just promise to hear us if we say God's name? Not necessarily to well, do exa- the thing, right? Exactly, right? Because it goes back to that uh, saying slash cliche, which I don't think actually shows up in the Bible, mm-hmm. where sometimes God answers prayer with a "Yes, my child." That's exactly what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes God answers with a "No, that's not at all what's mm-hmm. what we're going to do mm-hmm. now." And then sometimes it's a "Maybe just wait." <laughs> right, right, right. And I, I guess I think, like, in a, in a way that's similar to, there are lots of things that are done in God's name in the Bible that I don't think God was behind. But I think part of the point of the storytelling is to say, look, it's possible that people do terrible things, mm-hmm. uh, convinced that they are doing them in the name of God. Um, and I think one of the things we have to acknowledge, too, is that there are sometimes tensions and voices within Scripture themselves that take different positions on where God was in things. You know, when the, when the people cry out for a king, you get voices in the Bible that are definitely pro-king. The book of Judges is all about, see how terrible it is when we don't have a king? Everybody does things their own way, and how awful it is when everybody lives according to their you know, what seems right in their own eyes. And then you get the book of Samuel, which is like, it's going to be terrible when you get a king. God is not in favor of you having a king, and yet grants them the... And, and like God has this sort of like... You rejected me if you pick having a king and yet I will I will endure being rejected and I will still you know work with you even though you do this thing I don't want um, but you got in the Bible itself people on different sides of that issue mm-hmm. God is pro-king God is anti-king and both of them are part of the Bible and um, lest we slide into the temptation of we'll just cut out the part we don't like we have to live with but mm, both of those are there um, for that matter you get in Mark's gospel Jesus says um, anyone who isn't against us is for us, and in Matthew's gospel, you get anyone who isn't for us is against us. I mean, like the Woody. Wait a second; those are like almost opposite in meaning, um, and have very much to do with uh, where is God and the uh, on, on which side kind of a thing. Um, and I think that tension is important to name rather than pretend it isn't there. Um, yeah, we can't all be Thomas Jefferson, where we just cut out cut, the parts that cut out, cut out the parts <laughs> we don't like. Um, if Martin Luther couldn't get rid of the book of James, James yeah, then we can't get rid of parts we don't like. Right, right, right. And I, I think there's something valuable, honestly, about acknowledging that if 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 God is real, God shouldn't automatically line up with things I already happen to like. God, should, I, that should be one of the tests of are we dealing with a real God or a, a, an idol we made in our own image? If it turns out, boy, that's awfully convenient that your God already hates the people you already hate or already endorses the thing. Hmm, that's convenient. Um, and that if we find ourselves challenged by something in this God, that's maybe, an ev- maybe evidence that we're closer to, <laughs> to reality there. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I lay this out for for you all for your thoughts on like what what do we make of of this religious culture that we're in, where there's 
competing Jesuses, um, and how do we where where are ways where it's helpful or acceptable, and where are places where it's like oh, this is dangerous or this is unhealthy? I think we've talked about it before, like and just the idea of how we worship, and you know, in the Lutheran Church, you you all are slightly more liturgical than most Methodists are. You know, um, every week you have communion versus us who typically have it monthly. You know, and and so. I find that personally helpful because, you know, there are going to be certain people that are going to be attracted towards mm-hmm. the way you all do worship as Lutherans. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people that are going to be attracted to the way that we as Methodists, mm-hmm. which is a real broad thing sure. how we do worship because it's so varied across, you know, even just within our county, the way we do worship sure. within the Methodist church is different with every church. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, having these varied portraits, these various ideas of Jesus helps more people encounter him because then they'll find they might grasp onto this one aspect that they're really passionate about and they're mm-hmm. like oh Jesus is passionate about this too cool let's mm-hmm. follow this Jesus mm-hmm. and then eventually as they grow in their faith and you know there's going to be some places where they're going to be pushed they're going to be challenged and that's not necessarily a bad thing right, Jesus right, right. still pushes and challenges me every day mm-hmm. the last you know handful of sermons I've done you know during the Easter tide season have really Push me out of my own comfort zone. Mm. I'm like, oh crap! I've been doing this stuff that I'm telling my people not to do. Okay, um, you know, and that's that's okay. Uh, it's just when we take that one particular area, I think that we're passionate about, and make that all that Jesus is, mm. mm-hmm. is then when we start pushing that mm-hmm. boundary of idolatry. Mm-hmm. I think for me, we can't help but create our own version of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, okay. and I think that the way that we need to respect that honor that whatever is to be self-aware that we are doing it okay that you know because we do theology and theology is just the study of god and like we can't help but like form opinions Mm -hmm. um is to be aware that this is a pitfall that we're going to fall into Mm -hmm. and try to respect what the bible says what the Mm -hmm what we think the Holy Spirit is leading us towards in our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, what we're being called to do as Christians. Um, but, yeah, because I think that in in the American God world, if Norse religion, the worship of Odin and Thor and Loki, had become more of mainstream American <laughs> religion, right. uh-huh. I think then we would see multiple Thors. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Right. We'd see multiple Odins. We'd be seeing a lot more Tom Hiddleston Lokis running (laughs) around. Right, right, right. And, you know, because I think that's just, it's it's what we tend to do is we, you know, we care about something, we worship something, and since we, like, especially in the case of God, in case of Jesus, or Thor, or whomever, (laughs) you know, those aren't people that we... Had personally met, we are reading about them in a book that has multiple portrayals of them in the book. So, of course, we're going to identify with or more closely align with one portrayal over another. Mm -hmm. But I think just being self-aware that we do that. Sure. I I guess I wonder, though, too, like, and I I think there's a certain irreducible, there's going to be variations on our mental pictures of Jesus. Are there are there ways we helpfully discern? Like, are there boundaries at which, like, no Aryan Jesus or pro Nazi Jesus? Nope, that now now you've left behind that you've left behind enough of what is authentically Jesus that you can name that person in the white hood Jesus, but nope, that ain't mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, 
and I, I guess I wonder, like, the, one of the things that, that emerges for me in the show, uh, in, the, in the book American Gods, is how capricious and vain and needy all these other pagan deities are. And that there's something that seems important uh, about the, the God who's revealed in the, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is that, that Jesus isn't needy that way that, like, uh, Odin or, or Thor or somebody else might be. Um, and I think that seems to be part of what's, what's essential of, of this God's character, this sort of self-giving love, and that without that you... you 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 could lose something essential about who who Jesus is. That you could have a variation that is so far away off the mark mm-hmm. that like part of what Christianity collectively has to do is say like there are some boundaries here. There's lots of there's lots of variation here, but there's some things like nope, Jesus is not. Sh- we, we we should not uh, imagine a Jesus who was pro slavery. And yet, for an awful lot of American history, we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that is especially frustrating is that we like to imagine. Well, you know, we all kind of know Jesus. We we we'd be able to spot a faker if we saw him. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure we always are good at that. And American history itself says to me that we haven't always, and for that matter, 20th century history and how much of German Christianity was uh, perfectly fine with uh, what the Reich did. I mean, these are just obvious examples that are immediate. But a yeah. lot of our history has been, or even for that matter, when Constantine has this vision that Jesus appeared to him and said, "Conquer, wearing my cross as your logo, uh, that you will defeat your enemies." And something dramatic happened when we became the religion of the empire, and that the cross became not the sign of uh, a suffering, crucified Messiah, but now of the conquering empire, something dramatic changed, and nobody stopped and said, hey, this ain't Jesus. We've lost something essential here. Um, or at least if they, if people did say that, they were silenced or um, were like, no, let's just not mess up a good thing. At least they're not going to feed us to lions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and something got lost. There's been lots of places in Christian history where we've ended up doing that, maybe not even realizing that we're doing it. I don't know that I'm comfortable putting a lot of borders around who mm-hmm. Jesus is just mm-hmm. because Jesus is God and right. you can't contain him in a box. Um, but one of the borders I do feel relatively comfortable saying <laughs> about Jesus is if your Jesus hates someone, <laughs> then it's not huh. Jesus. Okay. And okay. I think that's the line for me too yeah. is that um, I think it's in first john or somewhere but that line of god is love right yeah. and and that anyone who doesn't first love doesn't really yeah. know god i, I think that's yeah. an important piece and so for me that's always the that's the ruler that <clears throat> mm-hmm. i check myself against is um god is love therefore is what i'm trying to get jesus to say or do or be mm-hmm. in this particular um gospel reading that i am trying to preach on is jesus saying something about love Right. Who is Jesus trying to love? What is what is Jesus's motive here? Right. You know, it's usually love. And when I, if I get off the path and I want to say something that's completely opposite to that, then I know that I am hearing other voices that mm-hmm. are not mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. Jesus's. I'm probably hearing political discourse sure. language mm-hmm. from culture, our culture, yeah. and not what Jesus My- is actually trying to say. My nervousness is, and I get that because, like, there's a piece of me that's like, "Yep, I, that that love should be the touchstone." My nervousness is that in times, even just in American history, where things that seem very, very much opposed to the spirit of love, say, for example, slavery, um, mm-hmm. that there were folks, white Christians, 
who were convinced it was a loving thing to keep people as slaves because those poor slaves they just they couldn't do it on their own they need and like that love like you read the writings of say a Robert E Lee and like he's convinced that that by not only by is he being a good patriot to his home native Virginia he's convinced from time to time in his writings he thinks it's good for those poor slaves who wouldn't be able to one they wouldn't accept the gospel if we hadn't made them slaves and brought them here and second of all they wouldn't be able to manage themselves because they're not really human and whoa. Right. There, oh wait! So like, it's it's amazing how once we've decided, okay, love is the touchstone. I have to find a way to justify what I want to do with love. We've just made one more layer of like, okay, well, what does love mean? So okay, you know yeah. Jesus because he loves. All right, what does love look like? And I, I don't mean to make this a bottomless pit here, but um, and I'm sure the the folks in the the German church in the 1930s would have said it's because we love our native homeland so much that we are willing to say goodbye to those people who don't accept our Jesus, and because they're Jewish that they that that's why they're the enemy. They don't accept Jesus, and man, how quickly uh, love uh, can get used as the label to cover a lot of mm-hmm. terrible things. Um, and for that matter, too, like even in the scene in the, the show American Gods, you've got the folks on the border who I'm convinced if you would ask them, if you could ask these fictional characters, they would say it's because we love our country so much that we have to shoot these mm-hmm. people. Um, and to me, like that means maybe I'm just spitballing here, but a piece of how we talk about what love looks like is it always has to include the enemy. I mean, that mm-hmm. it, it always, I mean, that it's not just love for the ones who are like me, but whatever Jesus kind of love looks like, it also, whoever I'm convinced I'm opposed to, I have to be able to show some kind of graciousness even toward those I'm, I'm most opposed to. And that's, that's even harder. <laughs> that's why I said, you, you know, if you're God hates. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that love, love can be twisted. It, that's and, kind of, it, it can and, get mushy, huh? <laughs> it can get mushy, it can get twisted, it can be used, you know, in so many bad ways, but, you know, when, yeah, my love of my country says, and then these people, mm, there, there's, you know, that's where you mm-hmm. see the hate coming. I mm-hmm. think it's more easy mm-hmm. to see hate yeah. than to, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not twist love. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. that's... Um, but yeah, yeah, I think true love, actual love that God demonstrates for us can't be twisted. And I think that what your examples, Steve, are examples of humans twisting love, mm-hmm. but that's not... Gods, right? Love. right, right. Agape right. love can't be twisted, but right. How often do we reach agape love? But I, I think that that is a good reminder to always look at how did Jesus love? Mm-hmm. Like right. with and with who did Jesus mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. who did Jesus mm-hmm. love? Mm-hmm. Everybody. Um, but that's you know. Jesus loved the man who was possessed by a legion of demons whose own people kept him Mm -hmm. naked and chained amongst the dead, Mm -hmm. but yet Jesus loved him. Jesus loved the woman who committed adultery and everybody was ready to stone, and yet Jesus loved her. Mm -hmm. And Jesus loved, you know, we could keep going on and on and on about, but... The point is that agape love that you pointed out, it can't be twisted. And maybe this is a, a I don't I don't mean to, to like say this will solve our problem, but maybe it's a direction, is that um, when we're asking the what does love look like, that's what brings us back to the stories. And they, so we don't have to say we have to iron them all out so there's no wrinkles across the gospel to say what, what do we see about what love looks like in Jesus in the gospels? Oh, well, it looks like foot washing rather than kicking out the person with dirty feet. It looks like healing mm-hmm. the person who's got demons rather than saying for the sake of everybody else, we have to keep you chained up. I mean, the, mm-hmm. there, the, Jesus gives us a, a picture. There's a line of um, 
Eugene Peterson, he says that uh, Jesus is the dictionary in which Christians look up the meaning of words. Um, and that there's a sense in which, like, okay, if, if we're convinced that the heart of what makes Jesus Jesus is love, then we go back to Jesus and say, all right, now, Jesus, show us what love looks like. And we don't have to pit Matthew versus Mark versus Paul, versus, but, okay, there's this picture of what love looks like in the life of Jesus as, as this person. That Maybe then the center is clear and the edges, it's okay if the edges are blurry. Um, and that, that might be our helpful way of avoiding what you said about the, the boundaries and the borders of like, nope, this is out of bounds, this is acceptable. But say the center's got to be clear and focused and that this Jesus who shows us love in suffering, in inclusion, in dying rather than killing, that like that's a pretty decent picture of what Jesus thinks love looks like. Um, and that if that's clear, then we need to be less fussy about like what exactly is the boundary. At what point have you left and you've you've lost enough of historical Jesus and you don't have Jesus anymore? But if the the center is clear, that might be a helpful way of thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your willingness to indulge this uh, sort of scattershot uh, piece from uh, this book, which I found fascinating and thought provoking, but is also a spoiler alert. Um, graphically violent and also graphic in its depiction of uh, other sorts of things as well. So fair warning, if you're not familiar with it, I'm not saying go make this your church book club book. <laughs> but at least the premise is, it worth, uh, is at least worth uh, us, us thinking about. Well, we hope that these episodes have been uh, helpful or valuable as we've taken a look at points in pop culture. We've connected with our faith in good ways and maybe negative examples too. But um, thanks for listening. And Wait. Oh. For our listeners, one last time. Yeah, the book. The, the book is American, American Gods, Gods by, by Neil, Neil Gaiman. G A I M A N, published 2001. Yes. Thank you much. <laughs> All right, Bye. See you next time.